Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Thank you so much for joining us for this training today. Um, I guess I'll start just by introducing myself and my colleague here. I am Laura Wagner, and I am the Associate Director of Legal Programs at the Rion Immigrant Center. Uh, in that role, I am the primary manager of our forms, workshops, and clinic programs. And I'm joined today by my colleague, Jacqueline or Jackie Kelly, who is our Senior Attorney and Manager of Medical Legal Partnerships. Manage it means she manages all of our medical legal partnerships with various area hospitals. We are going to go through sort of four things today in um, our training. Um, first, we're going to do sort of a basic overview of immigration benefits. So when you come into the forms workshop, you have sort of the lay of the land and some idea of what things you're looking at. Jackie and I will go over some frequently used terms in immigration law, things you might see on the forms that you'll be completing. I'll go through sort of what happens at the workshops in case you decide to join us for one of those. I'll give you some tips on completing forms and interacting with clients during the workshop. So I'm gonna turn it over to Jackie um, so she can give you sort of the overview of immigration benefits and we'll keep an eye on the Q&A too in case folks have questions. Thanks, Lara. Uh, as Lara mentioned, my name is Jackie. I'm an immigration attorney at RIAN. Um, just so that you can all have a basic lay of the land, as Lara said, um, of immigration law, although immigration law is very complex, we're going to start um, zooming all the way back um, to the various agencies and sub-agencies that are involved when we say the word immigration. Um, generally, largely controlled um, by the executive branch. Um, of course, uh, who is who is occupying occupying the role of U.S. president matters. There are many discretionary decisions, policy decisions that get made um, that can be quite political. Um, uh, the Department of State is the um, agency that we interact with when we are, for example, um, trying to bring family members from abroad through consulates. All the consulates are abroad are under the Department of State as is the what's called the National Visa Center, which does some of the pre-processing of people's visas to come here um, to immigrate to the United States. Um, the, uh, the agency that we deal with most frequently at RIAN is DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Within DHS, several sub-agencies um, are uh, relevant to our day-to-day -day work. Uh, the one that you will likely be, be interacting with in the sense that the, your, the applications that you're preparing are going to is the sub-agency the sub USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. Uh, it is really the affirmative wing of um, granting immigrant be immigration benefits. Um, of the Department of Homeland Security. ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, of course, does enforcement. CBP um, are the folks at the airport and the land border crossings, um, really controlling the flow of, of migrants at the border. Uh, within the Department of Justice, um, so a totally different department than, than uh, um, DHS, lie the immigration courts, uh, which were, are within the Executive Office of Immigration Review. Um, and um, the Board of Immigration Appeals as well is where you would um, appeal a decision from an immigration judge, for example. 
Okay. So again, when we say the word immigrant um, is a general catch-all term that um, encapsulates a number of different types of statuses. Um, so there are different kinds of temporary statuses that are not do not lead to permanent um, permanent residence in the U.S. There's asylees and asylees and refugees, which we'll discuss in a moment. LPRs or lawful permanent residents, aka green card holders, people who are undocumented, and we'll we'll discuss what specifically that means. And um, U.S. citizens who um, have gone through the naturalization process to become U.S. citizens. So under the bucket of temporary lawful residents are many different kinds of visas and statuses. We won't get into all of them here. A couple of examples listed down here at the bottom might be somebody who has temporary protected status. That might be something you've heard of in the news recently. Um, people who are nationals of certain countries that have gone through, for example, um, either uh, un civil unrest or a war or a natural disaster. And um, immigration here determines that it's unsafe for the for the nationals of that country to return home or to be sent home. They may they may designate that country for temporary protected status. So there's a number of countries right now that are designated for for TPS. Um, other examples might be people here on non permanent visas. People here studying on student visas, those are F visas, or visitors here for pleasure for business or coming here for medical treatment, generally on B visas, people here um, as uh, temporary workers, or other sorts of designations of individuals that might be on the pathway to a green card but aren't quite yet. For example, people who have been granted U visas as crime victims is another example. Um, every sort of status, uh, visa and status or quasi status um, has different rules and regulations regarding how long you can stay, whether or not you can work, whether or not you can travel in and out. Um, and whether or not you're eligible for, for public benefits. Um, very status specific. Um, and one note of importance is um, understanding that someone's visa does not necessarily, the, the validity of their visa does not necessarily and often does not um, correspond to how long they're actually allowed to remain in the United States as the visa might be a multi-entry document that's valid for a number of years but the person who is utilizing the visa may only be able to be here, for example, for a six month period. So that's the difference between an authorized stay period and the, and the validity of the visa is something to watch out for. Asylees and refugees are essentially the same in the sense that they have to meet the same standard of a well-founded fear of persecution, but they're just processed very differently. So someone who is a refugee, although we use the term refugee to describe a lot of people fleeing their homelands or migrants fleeing their homelands, it specifically means somebody who has been processed for refugee status abroad and is admitted to the United States as a refugee. So they already come here with full permanent refugee status. Um, asylees are people who come some other way, uh, either overstay a visa or enter on a visa, apply for asylum or appear at the border, for example, and ask for protection. Um, those people will go through an asylum process. Um, and if granted, they become then, then become asylees. So the well-founded fear of persecution, asylum law is very complex, but in general has to be based on a protected ground, which is either race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or something called membership in a particular social group um, where attorneys make different sort of um, arguments that people, uh, are within a social group that would be, um, that is recognized in the country, um, that they would experience, um, that are, this individual is gonna experience persecution if they're forced to return home. 
So again, asylees apply here, refugees are processed from abroad, and in general, both asylees and refugees are um, eligible for permanent residence after one year of residing in the United States in that status, although technically asylee and refugee status alone is indefinite and is not um, does not expire. Um, it does allow for a pathway to LPR green card status after one year. So LPRs, green card holders, um, this is a status that does not expire. You're allowed to live and work here permanently. Um, something that confuses people all the time is uh, that nonetheless, immigration does put a um, expiration date on people's uh, permanent resident cards. That's mostly so that they can, um, can uh, make them appear for fingerprints every 10 years so that they can see if they've committed any deportable crimes. Um, but in general, the status itself is permanent. Um, uh, at LPRs after five years are generally eligible to become U.S. citizens. Some people are eligible after three years if they meet certain criteria uh, related to being married to a U.S. citizen and living with that U.S. citizen. Um, although an L LPR status is permanent, um, these individuals are still subject to deportation and to the re removability grounds. They can be placed into um, deportation proceedings if they commit, for example, a deportable crime. Um, and uh, there are very limited pathways that allow someone to obtain permanent status. There are many people in the country who are either just never going to be eligible for that under the laws as they exist now, or will only be eligible for some sort of temporary lesser status. Um, in general, the pathways are um, a very close family relationship, someone who can petition for you, getting petitioned for by an employer, um, being a refugee or an asylee or some other kind of um, humanitarian status like a crime victim or a trafficking victim um, or something called the diversity visa lottery, which is um, really literally a lottery system for undersubscribed groups of immigrants in the United States. So um, uh, countries from which we don't have as high rates of immigration would be eligible to basically win a green card and immigrate to the United States through the, through the diversity visa lottery. Okay, so when we say um, undocumented immigrants, um, we mean people who currently don't have status, um, regardless of the manner in which they originally arrived here. So there may be someone who came across the border without inspection by an immigration officer um, who is undocumented, or it could be somebody who came here on a tourist visa and overstayed that visa, or somebody who had some other temporary lawful status that expired for many years, but that, that then expired. Um, the majority of undocumented immigrants do not have a pathway to lawful status. That's why it's, of course, so frustrating for so many of us who work in immigration law when, when others say, well, why don't they just get in line and apply for a green card? And, and if it was that easy, uh, we would have people lining up down the block around, uh, out the door around the block that you'd have to help us um, fill out the applications for. There's just many people who don't have those that that option. So being undocumented, um, several of the harsh realities are that you can't legally work. Um, so therefore, the types of jobs you're going to be able to to obtain are going to be um, it's going to be di more difficult for you to obtain a job that's going to be able to support you and your family. No social security number unless you were eligible for one previously when you held a status. Most or uh, many states do not allow for undocumented individuals to have a driver's license that changed very recently in Massachusetts, very, very recently, um, thankfully, um, but still in many other states in the United States, it's not possible to legally drive, can't travel, 
well, you can't, you can leave, but you probably can't come back in subjects to arrest and detention. And um, many people are not eligible for um, most public benefits um, if you're undocumented. Um, so naturalized citizens, these are people who have gone through the naturalization process to become a US citizen. You have to stop, you have to um, be an LPR first in order to apply for citizenship. Um, most people are eligible after five years. Again, some people are eligible for three if you've been married to and living with your US, US citizen spouse for those for the years that you've been a green card holder. Um, there are other ways to obtain citizenship besides through naturalization. Um, there's a process uh, called derivation where children who um, are lawful, minor children under 18 who are lawful permanent residents living in the United States, living in the custody of a parent who becomes a citizen through naturalization will automatically become citizens themselves. And then there's also the um, phenomenon of uh, US citizens born abroad to, US, to um, US citizen parents who acquire US citizenship at birth. So that's derivation versus acquisition. And there's several um, sort of limitations and rules that apply depending on the years that people were born um, and the physical presence requirements for parents here in the United States. All right. We're gonna go over some of the frequently used terms in immigration law. These are things that often will appear on the USCIS form that you'd be completing in the workshop. So we think it's helpful for folks to know sort of what, what verbology they're looking at. Um, so the first one is a non-immigrant. So Jackie went over this earlier, right? These are folks who enter the US for a temporary period of time and the activity they're allowed to do in the United States is sort of restricted by their visa, right? So maybe you come to be a student and all you can do is be a student um, or something like that. Um, as Jackie said earlier too, a refugee is someone who is outside of the United States and unable to remain or return to their home country because of a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, an asylee is the same in a lot of ways as a refugee, except for they're already present in the United States when they apply, or they're at you know, a land border or a port of entry, like an airport, um, seeking refuge into the United States. Jackie, I think you are muted again. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, we discussed at length what an, what an LPR is, somebody who has a green card. Um, this uh, is not the same as citizenship. It can be taken away again if somebody, for example, commits a deportable crime. You can lose it by staying outside of the country too long, but is indefinite in the sense that it does not expire. Um, deferred action is basically a grant of um, prosecutorial discretion on behalf of the agencies to decide to not um, execute immigration laws against people who don't have immigration status. And um, DACA is one form of deferred action, deferred action for childhood arrivals, specifically for people who arrived here as children um, and generally who were in, engaged in some form of study. Um, so again, DACA is one large program um, that is a subsection of deferred action at large. People can also be granted deferred action um, on individual circumstances, for example, for medical need. Um, TPS we discussed as well, um, temporary protected status. Usually what you get with TPS is a work permit and um, 
you can apply for the ability to travel as well uh, with TPS, but it by itself, it does not lead to a green card. It never ripens into permanent status unless you become eligible through some other ground. But again, it's granted to people who are nationals of countries who have been designated for TPS because of usually a natural disaster or civil strife. So someone who entered it without inspection, where you'll often hear immigration attorneys say the acronym as GIWI, is someone who entered the United States by crossing a land border without having a visa or authorization and without going through a formal port of entry. Um, this is more often than our southern border than our northern border, um, but that does not mean people don't we across the northern border. It does happen, um, but these are going to be folks who sort of, you know, come in an irregular way through the desert or across you know the Rio Grande as opposed to going through a formal board of entry. Um, and as Jackie was saying earlier, someone who is undocumented is someone who has no legal right to remain in the United States. Often it's someone who initially eweed and never had status in the United States or someone who overstays uh, a temporary visa. So uh, these are important terms for people filling out forms, especially in our forms workshop. A petitioner is the person who is filing for the immigration of their relative, like the sponsor, um, a US citizen or a permanent resident, depending on who the beneficiary is. The beneficiary is the person who hopes to receive permanent status or LPR status um, once that petition is granted. Um, the A number is the identification number for immigrants uh, with uh, various agencies uh, that control immigration. A, num a stands for alien, alien registration number. Unfortunately, that's still a term that is all over the immigration laws, um, the term alien. But in A number, it looks a lot um, like a social because it's often nine digits or eight digits with a zero in front. Um, and it applies, to, and one is assigned to basically everyone except U.S. citizens um, or cer other certain non-immigrants. Uh, and it stays with the person throughout sort of their immigration life. Even when they naturalize, it's gonna be on their naturalization certificate. Um, it's also a tool that when we need to figure out, you know, we need to find documents on somebody who may have lost their, um, their documents related to their immigration history. Um, having their A number is often a key to being able to, to recreate that information, to be able to find that information through the Freedom of Information Act. Um, a green card is just um, the card you get when you have LPR status. It actually is green. Um, used to be called an alien registration card. Um, it does have an expiration date again, although the status itself does not expire. The purpose of that expiration date is to, to force people to renew it, at which point their fingerprints would be run and any deportable activity, I guess, may be uh, identified at that point. Um, and a visa foil, when we say foil, that's just the actual travel document, the visa that's in someone's passport. Um, people can hold, for example, a U visa or a T visa or something, and they don't actually have a visa foil in their passport because they never, they obtained that status here in the United States. They have, didn't actually need to um, enter uh, with a travel document. So a visa foil is usually what's uh, pasted into your passport uh, at a consulate. Um, so a lot of folks who have a visa foil will also have something called an I-94 card. Um, these used to be actually physical little white cards that customs would give to you. Now, by and large, they're digital, um, and you have to look them up on CBP's website. 
but this is the document that is issued to someone when they are admitted to the United States in some sort of temporary status. Um, and so the expiration date that is printed on an I-94 is the controlling date for when that status expires. So you might have someone who has, say, a 10-year multiple entry tourist visa. And so the FOIL that Jackie was just describing in the passport will be good for 10 years. But they can't stay in the U.S. for 10 years at any given point in time. Instead, each time they come, Customs will issue them an I-94 card that will list how long they're allowed to stay in the United States on that entry. Usually it's six months at a time on a tourist visa. Um, that also will tell you sort of like what kind of status someone was admitted in, um, sort of with a code that they put on the I-94. Some folks do still get paper ones. Like Jackie said, if you're admitted to a temporary status from within the United States, USCIS usually will still send you an I-94 card in the mail. They get attached to TPS notices or U visa approvals or asylum approvals. Um, but most folks who come through an airport now are getting them online. Um, you also see folks who have what we call an EAD or an employment authorization document. It's probably more colloquially called a work permit. Um, and it is issued to folks who are allowed to work because of either a pending application or a temporary status um, that comes with a work authorization. So folks who have things like TPS or DACA or asylum status will also have a work permit that allows them to work. Folks with like pending asylum applications also are eligible uh, for work permits. Then there is the naturalization certificate which is the proof of US citizenship that gets issued at the time of an oath ceremony. Um, it is a sort of fancy, nice looking certificate that says when someone took their oath and became a US citizen. All right, are there, I don't think I see any, but we're gonna move on now to talking about sort of the forms workshop um, and how we go through that. And then we are happy to take any questions as well. All right, so we run our forms workshops at the BBA, usually on the second Monday of every month. Um, this month it is the third Monday because next Monday is a federal holiday. Um, so we'll be there on the 16th, Jackie and I, um, and then again the second Monday in November. Um, prior to the workshop, Rion pre-screens all of the clients. So every client who is coming to our forms workshop has had a consultation with one of the attorneys like myself or Jackie to be sure they are eligible for whatever relief we're having them, them fill out in the forms workshop. And we try to only schedule folks with reasonably straightforward cases um, at the forms workshop because we are doing them in a limited scope model. So we're helping them complete the application and make sure you know everything is right in the packet but we aren't representing them in the case beyond that point. Um, so prior to the workshop, our scheduling staff schedules clients for the workshop, and then I pair them up with all of the volunteers that are also um, registered to attend any given workshop. When I pair people up, usually what I'm looking at is primarily language capacity um, because, you know, we are an immigration law office, right? Not all of our clients speak English. Um, and so some a lot of the times when I'm pairing, the primary thing I look at is if I'm gonna pair a client with a volunteer who speaks the same language. Um, once I pair everybody up, I will then send you additional training materials based on the form type I've paired you with. 
So in our forms workshop, we do a variety of different types of forms. Um, we help people file petitions for their relatives, as Jackie described earlier, to renew their DACA, to do TPS applications, to renew their green cards through that process Jackie described that has to happen every 10 years, um, to apply for citizenship, to request their records through the Freedom of Information Act, and to apply for or renew their work permits. We have additional specific training materials that go with each of those application types. And so you'll receive from me a training video that goes over that specific application and how to complete the forms, annotated versions of all of the forms that you would need to complete for your application type, and a control sheet that we've put together that has red flags for that application type, as well as sort of a list of the particular parts of the form you need to be sure you complete. When you arrive at the workshop itself, you'll check in with a member of our staff and we'll direct you to the table we've assigned to you where you and your client will sit down so that you can go through the forms with them. You'll get to introduce yourself and confirm, you know, you're both on the same page about what applications are being filled out. And then you're gonna go through those applications with them at the workshop. We ask clients to come prepared with the information and documents that they need for the form. That doesn't mean it always happens. Um, but most of the time, our clients will come with sort of the paperwork that they they need, so you'll be able to complete the application there at the workshop. Um, like I said before, if you speak a second language, I try to pair you with a client that also speaks that language, um, but that doesn't always 100% work out. Um, so if your client speaks a language that you do not, we will have a volunteer interpreter or access to a language line so that you'll be able to communicate with that client. At the workshop, you'll use the control sheets that we provide and the documents that the client provides to fill out the relevant forms. I will have a folder for you with hard copy versions of all of the forms and the control sheets. And we have pens and whiteout and all of those materials for you to use to handwrite into the forms. If you prefer to type, because that's just your preference or you don't think I'm gonna be able to read your handwriting, you are welcome to bring a computer and fill out the forms that way. They are publicly available on USCIS's website as global PDFs. And then you just email to me the completed forms. Um, before the client leaves the worksheet, we will ensure that the client and the interpreter, if that's applicable, have signed all of the relevant signature pages. And then we have a copy of all of the relevant documents that they need for their particular application. Um, and if there are any documents that are missing or information that's incomplete, then we'll have you check in with us so we can arrange for the client to get that information to us after the workshop. After the workshop, all of the applications are quality controlled. Um, so we don't file anything without double checking that we have everything, that everything is filled out correctly, that what's in the application matches whatever was in the consult notes from the attorney who did the consultation with the client. And then we put everything together we keep a copy. We send the original to USCIS and we send the client a copy as well so they have it for their records. We also send them informational sheets that lay out what the next steps in their application process are. So say if they're applying for a work permit, they'll get an informational sheet that will explain, okay, these are the notices you are gonna get. This is what's gonna happen in your case. This is how you check the status of your case and all those kinds of things. All right. So we wanna just go over some quick tips for folks who are coming to our forms workshops um, about how to work with clients and interpreters and other things like that. 
So as I said, many of our clients do not speak English or do not speak English as a first language or as a primary language. And so a lot of them will be using interpreters at the workshop. Um, when you're working with an interpreter, um, the best practice is to sort of pretend like the interpreter isn't there. So you don't want to tell the interpreter to tell the client things or say like, can you ask them this? You wanna speak as though you're directly speaking to your client and then let the interpreter just in interpret that as opposed to sort of asking the interpreter to do things. You also wanna be sure that the interpreter interprets every question that you ask and that they're interpreting all of the answers and not answering for the client without interpreting. Sometimes we have folks come to the Forbes workshop, especially if they speak languages that aren't as common with sort of a friend or a family member who's gonna interpret for them. This is particularly when you wanna be sure that you are, the client is answering your question and the interpreter is interpreting and they're not answering for their mom or their friend or their sister or something like that. Um, and so you wanna make sure that that interpreter is interpreting everything the client says as well and not leaving out information that maybe they think isn't relevant or something like that. Um, sometimes you'll also, in a case where you have an interpreter who's a family member or a friend, you might have concerns if there's sort of sensitive information that's coming up. You can always flag that for a member of the Rian staff if you're worried that maybe someone isn't giving you information because they know who they know the interpreter personally and they don't wanna give the information to the interpreter. Um, most of the time we'll have third-party interpreters at the workshop. We try our best to find independent volunteers to avoid this problem, but every so often someone brings a relative or it's more comfortable with a relative um, and you'll have sort of a family friend or someone like that interpreting. Okay, so like I said before, most clients will come to the workshop with the documents and the information that they need for their application type. It can be useful to start by asking people what they brought and looking at the documents because then when you're going through the application, you'll already sort of know where to find some of the information. So like Jackie was talking earlier about um, the A number. The A number is on all of the documents because it is the client's sort of number, identification number for immigration. So it will be on their green card or their work permit or their release paperwork from CBP or any of that. Um, so having those, those documents to look at can help you when filling out the forms. Many USCIS forms have sensitive questions about things like gambling or prostitution or abuse or criminal convictions. Sometimes clients get confused about why we are asking them these seemingly very invasive sounding questions, um, but they're required questions to complete the form. Um, and so, you know, you might get someone who sort of looks at you funny or says like, why are you asking me this question? Like, of course I'm not a prostitute, right? And it can help to explain to them that, you know, you're not asking these questions because you like personally care or you are trying to dig into their life. You're asking these questions because it, it's what the form says and immigration requires everyone to answer these questions. And so you're just, you're just trying to help them, you know, make sure the form is completed com correctly. Um, many USCIS forms also contain questions that have a lot of legalese. They do not write the yes and no questions, the admissibility screening questions in plain English. If a client seems confused by the legalese, feel free to rephrase the question or to provide an explanation to what the question means. If you are confused by the legalese, 
you can flag a member of our team like me or Jackie, and we will help to explain sort of why the question is being asked and what the purpose of it is. A lot of our clients are also going to have experienced traumatic events in their past. It's best practice to avoid asking unnecessary questions about those events um, and prefer to just sort of stick to the questions that you need to complete the form. Um, because then we we don't risk re-traumatizing people or making them like talk about their trauma um, when it's sort of not relevant to the work that we're doing. Um, and sort of as a final tip, at the end of the workshop, when you have the client sign their forms, um, it's good to remind them that when they sign a USCIS form, they are swearing that all of the information is true. And USCIS is going to run a complete background check on them as part of the process. And they will find anything that the client does not disclose to you. Even if say their criminal case was dismissed or potentially sealed or any of those kinds of things, it still shows up at a government background check and the government will find it um, because they are good at that. So at the workshop, there will always be at least two legal representatives from Rion supervising the workshop, usually myself and someone else. Um, if you have any kind of question, um, you can flag one of us. Um, if like you have a your client asks a question about the immigration process that you can't answer, maybe because immigration isn't your primary practice area or you're a law student volunteer and you're not supposed to sort of be giving legal advice, you can flag one of us. Um, and once you've completed the forms, we ask that you flag one of us. So we can double check that you have everything and make sure that we have all the documents. So we are there to answer your questions, to help in any way we can. There is no question too small or silly or anything like that. We are more than happy to answer them. All right, that is the end of sort of our primary presentation. We don't have any questions in the Q&A right now, but we can give it a few minutes to see if anybody has them. I, I don't know that you guys can unmute, but I think you can put Questions in the Q&A. All right, we have one here. Any tips for discussing traumatic events with a client through an interpreter? I always find it hard to convey emotion or help build trust with the client going through an interpreter and not being able to convey the message myself. I think, so I think I would say two tips that I have. I think one, even if people don't understand the words that you are saying, they can still hear the emotion in your voice or see the emotion on your face. So I think like you can, you can convey emotion, right? If you're like speaking to someone, even if there is an interpreter as well, right? They'll hear it in, in your voice, they'll see it on your face. I also think discussing traumatic events, it can be good to use a third party interpreter um, someone who is also sort of independent um, and the client might not have a personal relationship with, and to make sure from the outset that the client understands that you and the interpreter are going to keep everything that they say confidential and that all of the questions you're asking are not because sort of you are there to personally judge the client. You're just trying to collect the information that you need to work on their case. Do you have others to add, Jackie? Yeah, the only other thing I would add is to just underscore what Lara said previously, that um, the 
many of the traumatic events that clients have experienced may not be relevant and are often not relevant to what you're doing in a forms workshop. Um, so even if a client is the one to bring up, um, for example, you have an asylee who's applying for an, a work permit based on being an asylee and you're doing the work permit application and they're bringing up details about their underlying asylum claim um, is to gently um, guide them back to the purpose for which you are both there that day. Um, Again, because even if a client themselves brings it up, hashing out the details that are really not relevant to the process you're doing that day is just going to end up being more traumatic for someone. Um, so the next question, are there any scripts that we Rianne would provide or expect us to follow at the start or end of the session about confidentiality or providing truthful information? We don't have specific scripts that we give to people. Um, no. Um, you're welcome to sort of go over with clients, you know, that everything is confidential and things like that. We do have people sign retainers and we tell them about like what the workshop is before we schedule everyone. So we've already had sort of that conversation with clients. And since we come and check in before you go, um, before the client goes, we also sort of check in with them about the next steps before we uh, we send them on their way. Do you have other things to add, Jackie? No? All right. Are there any other questions? Yes. So everyone who is scheduled for one of our workshops has been previously screened by one of the attorneys at Rianne. No one is scheduled without going through a consultation with us first. Um, in terms of where you can learn about future clinics, we host a clinic with the BBA every second Monday of the month and will through the end of this bar year. Um, you can find them all on the BBA's website and they have the link to sign up. Um, our clinics with the BBA right now are our primary um, pro bono opportunity that we run. Um, but you're welcome to reach out to Jackie or I and we can talk to you about uh, other opportunities as well. Um, a lot of the other opportunities probably require sort of a bit more immigration experience uh, than the forms workshop.
Are there any other questions? All right, well, seeing none, um, we can wrap it up there. You can find Jackie and I's information on the Rion website, um, and we will send out, or rather the BBA, we'll send out the slides after, uh, after the training. And as they said earlier, the training video will also be available later on the Bar Association's website. Um, and you can find the sign-up links for all of the workshops on the BBA's calendar as well.